shit you love. The podcast of the series of the graphic novel of the album where I get to crap on about anything I like. Hello, brave listener. Welcome to episode four of Only the Shit You Love, the podcast, where I crap on about stuff. In the cartoon series, we're up to old sneakers, which, of course, are a thumpingly obvious metaphor for the comforting past. We're going to start this happy vibes right from the root. Yeah. That's right. Musically speaking, old sneakers is something of a departure for me. My attempt to bring a little of the smooth, white soul influence into my otherwise harshly unsoulful oeuvre. I mentioned in episode one that my strange period of listening to nostalgia radio station Gold FM elicited a rediscovery of the work of Hall & Oates, the pop kings of white soul in the 70s and 80s, and my guilty pleasure at buying some of their stuff. Just to make myself feel more righteous, I also bought Curtis by Curtis Mayfield, which clearly looks better in my record collection. When friends I want to impress come up the stairs, I'll pop the Curtis in front of the Daryl, thanks very much. But the fact that I'm a vain, insecure person doesn't diminish the work of Daz and the diminutive, mustachioed John. They came up with some corkers, like She's Gone. She's gone, she's gone, oh I, oh I, I better learn how to face She's gone, she's gone, oh I, oh I, I pay the devil to replace her. She's gone, and she's gone, oh I, what went wrong? Sarah Smile. It's you and me forever. I can't go for that. And so on. They were themselves influenced by the pigeonhole known as Philly Soul, which, as you'd imagined, emanated from Philadelphia. It was in the late 60s, in particular, producers Tom Bell and Gamble and Huff, working out of Sigma Sound Studios. They trademarked this kind of lush, romantic sound full of sweeping strings and big dudes with high voices. One of the great pop acts to epitomise that sound was the Stylistics. God bless you. Produced by Tom Bell, they had a string of hits in the 70s, which used to appear seemingly ubiquitously on a Saturday morning pop TV show in Australia called Sounds Unlimited. Sounds Unlimited was hosted by a former radio announcer and obscure pop singer called Donnie Sutherland. 
who looked like he'd come straight from the nearest disco, hangover and all, but remaining sort of blearily chirpy. I watched Sounds Unlimited religiously during the late 70s, just like I watched Countdown, but mostly to yell at the television because I couldn't stand the people on it or the music they played. I was, of course, Mr. Outer Suburban Whitebread Boy, who was morphing from his adolescent white boy music tastes to punk rock, which was equally white. How whitebread was I? Well, the prosecution merely has to look in the why section of my record collection and there's the evidence, my lud. Yes songs. The ostentatiously Roger Dean designed triple album by Yes. 28 minute song with indecipherable lyrics sung in a chipmunk voice leaders of the whitest of all white music genres, progressive rock. Which leads me to this week's episode of... Only the Bits I Love! Okay, that wasn't actually yes. It was Emerson, Lake and Palmer or ELP, the more convenient abbreviation which allowed them to replace Carl Palmer with Cozy Powell and not have to change the giant E, L and P that emblazoned the roofs of their three equipment semi-trailers. When I was 12 years old, Prog, as we now sneeringly call it, was so tremendously impressive to me, it had this kind of inbuilt snobbery which drew the young wannabe musician like a Labrador to a string of sausages. Prog was all about reaching beyond the confines of rudimentary pop music. The music became more complex, the musicianship more difficult, the lyrics more, allegedly, intelligent, the album covers more exotic, and the equipment, well, more. Is it a bloke programming thing, like the way we're brainwashed by society, that blokes have a propensity to get obsessed by equipment? You know, cars, boats, computers, bikes, shit, even golf is all about the equipment, isn't it? And if you want any indication that Prog was all about the equipment, just check out the back cover of Amagama, the early 70s live album by Pink Floyd. The band themselves were a humdrum-looking bunch of unremarkables, but the equipment, shit, that was amazing. And so, there's this fabulous wide shot of the band's equipment, laid out in arrow shape on a country road with their gong, the compulsory item for all prog artists, sitting atop their van at the rear. How much of a fucking pain in the ass would that photo have been to set up Roadies sure had to work hard for their pittance in the prog era. The torch, for band is too boring so let's make the equipment the star of the show, was passed in the 21st century to LCD Sound System, uncuriously also one of my favourite bands. I saw them live once and their stage was like a recording studio with the walls and ceiling removed. Fascinating stuff to a whitebread bloke like me, but distracting because the whole time I was thinking, fuck, soundcheck must be a nightmare. Today, I'm proud of my prog records. 
Many of them are unlistenable, except maybe Close to the Edge by Yes, which, despite its long songs, still manages to engage the listener with some straightforward music and strong melody. But, yep, prog was part of my shakily Lego-built identity for a couple of my youthful years, and these days I embrace my fumbling past with the tolerance of an indulgent parent. Prog was the go when me and my mate at school decided that, even though neither of us could play an instrument, we were now in a band. We needed a proggy name for the band, something that would look good in Roger Dean-esque font. What did we come up with? Abroz. Abroz was Zorba backwards. And Zorba's was where we, as spottily wayward youths, were spending a lot of time unbeknown to our parents. Zorba's was a tiny pool parlour in Springy Road. Pool parlour makes it sound cavernous and slightly sleazy. It wasn't cavernous. There was only room for one small pool table and two money machines, or as we called them, baseball machines, which were like pinball machines, only they paid out money. It wasn't cavernous, but it sure was sleazy. Zorba's was the meeting place for a bunch of seedy Greek and Maltese geezers who were presumably conducting illegal gambling and laundering money. For us, oblivious, it was about baseball machines, pool and smoking. The rebellion du jour for your 14-year-old in 70s Springvale. There was a period of time in Year 9 when we used to wag school to hang out there. The petty criminals of Zorba's were like a second family to us. And so it was only fitting that our prog band, newly formed without an instrument, a song or even a music lesson, should be named in tribute. The idea, by the way, that people who can't play an instrument should form a band playing a music that requires elite skill on an instrument now strikes me as quite ahead of its time. But to give you an idea of the reality of the situation, let's do a little comparison. Here's ELP. And here's Abroz. the fall. Maybe we should consider releasing Abroz on vinyl and popping it in the noise rock section of your inner city record joint. We'd probably get a great review in Pitchfork. These days, you go to specialist colleges and you do music industry courses and you learn to sing exactly like Amy Winehouse and go on a reality show and become mega famous at 14. Me, 
I was in a garage in St John's Avenue, Springvale with three other kids barely able to play instruments playing what we thought was Tales of Brave Ulysses. And the colours of the sea find your eyes with trampling mermaids and you touch the distant beaches with Tales of Brave Ulysses. It was in fact the sound of a car horn in a blender. Accompanied by a little homemade box that had three different coloured lights on it and a packet of smoke powder from the magic shop in the hub arcade in Dandenong, which, when you lit it, let off a dark cloud of perfumed, concentrated asbestosis. That was the start of my musical journey. About the same time, I got a start in my employment journey. Jobs. Yep. Jobs. Is there any coincidence that Scottish people use the phrase we jobby to denote poo? Not in my estimation. I once went to a presentation by some management consultant who tried to suggest that the fundamental problem with people in the modern world was our narrow definition of work and that in fact work should expand to include things we'd normally assign to the leisure category. It was all very radical and, you know, fucking paradigm shifting, to borrow an abhorrent phrase, but I just thought it was Stockholm Syndrome, getting people to redefine work as a positive concept in their mind. Learn to love your captors. Call me old-fashioned, and I'll probably have to say that every five minutes throughout this podcast series. Call me old-fashioned, but in my world there's work and there's fun. I'm all for togetherness and breaking down the boundaries, but that particular boundary is my little personal apartheid, thank you very much. Work is work, and I work because I need it to live and to make the people I love happy, and I do it willingly and would do it all over again if I had the choice because there is a higher purpose. Doesn't mean I can't annoy you all by constantly whinging about it. Work is work. Whinging about it is fun. I understand completely that I should be very grateful to have a job at all. I know many people who lost theirs during the plague, and I don't wish to diminish or demean their plight by being such a moaner. I also want to point out very quickly that the people I work with, like many people I've worked with over the years, are the very best of human beings, people that I deeply admire. Work is what people do to be part of our deeply complex interdependent civilization, and doing it enriches and ennobles us. So what is my fucking problem? Tony Martin, my friend and unpaid creative consultant, once alerted me to the fact that on just about every single album I've released since Tism, there's at least one song somehow relating to work. I hope, if you follow my stuff... You see it as extemporising on a theme, rather than cow-banging on like a broken record. I mean, some people spend their whole career writing songs about fucking relationships. We don't accuse them of repetition, Your Honour. All Nick Cave songs are about Tupelo, aren't they? So I'll keep banging on like a broken record, thanks very much. And for the record, let's see if we can list songs I've released about work or inspired by characters I've met at work. In Root, there was Get Up Yourself, Part 2. So anyway, everyone tenses up at their computer and the unit starts raving about this girl he's just met. 
name is Tiffany, and she's just applied for the position of Integrated Strategic Synergy Implementer. The unit sat in on the interview panel because no one on the panel felt safe enough in their position to tell him to piss off. He was telling us about how Tiffany had just come from six months at her previous employer in a user-generated content link-baiting lead gen feed management role. Sort of emo. I, I get a little emo When my alarm clock screamo Wakes me from my dreamo And cause I've not one keno I'll catch that 7.15-o Sit all day at my machine-o What does it all mean-o? Then in the DC-3 it was station to station. I don't like Mondays, Tuesdays, Wednesdays, Thursdays, and Fridays. I don't like Mondays, Tuesdays, Wednesdays, Thursdays, and Fridays. Time is flying. I'm not having fun. And being. On Versus Art, it was the car that ate my life. I sold my oldest cheek, my friend saw less of me. Will have now seen juvenile, besides, I had to study nights. The future beckoned me, a global company. I could almost smell the apostery. In the car that my life And no app The man leant back in his place His knowledge captured Lean manufactured Wi-Fi workspace His face a look of rote insouciance Belied the voice lugubrious It is head insidious Invidious A chorus of idiots that said It's been three seconds since your last idea man your career, man, it's dead. In the disco machine, it was things I've said in job interviews. Your company and me are a perfect fit. I share your vision and mission too. And I totally give a shit about you. And numerous other couplets and throwaways and allusions dotted through my catalogue. It's a fair income leak motif. So what is my fucking problem? It's complicated. I'm a complicated guy, me. I lead two lives simultaneously. A working life and a creative life. 
and I couldn't do one without the other. It's too simplistic to say that I just work for the money to fund my creative life, although that's a big part of it. I am programmed to work. My parents were working class Catholics who grew up in the Great Depression and they inculcated in me and their children a deep-seated fear of unemployment. Job security above all else, above pay, above conditions, hell, way above anything so fucking self-indulgent as job satisfaction, was non-negotiable. And yet, the very idea that I should spend 40-plus hours every week being told by other people to do things I don't necessarily want to do strikes me as fundamentally absurd. And as I reach the twilight phase of my working life, I seem unable to grow out of that adolescent mindset. That's where my problems spring from. If you think the very idea of working is ridiculous, then every work conversation you're forced to have sounds like a punchline in a comedy that no one laughs at. That's why the only way I can survive is to chronicle it in song. And it's all my parents' fault. My poor mum and dad, not here to defend themselves. The minute I turned 14, they marched me out to find part-time work. And my first job, right about the time of the birth of my outsider music prog rock band Abroz, was at the mobile service station on the corner of St James Avenue and Springvale Road, Springvale, as a petrol pump attendant. A what? That's right. If you were born after a certain time, the idea of petrol pump attendant must sound to you like chimney sweep or penny farthing repairer. But, yes, there was a time back when we had other alien concepts like tram conductors and triplicate and thought asbestos was pretty good when we had 14-year-old boys paid fuck all who would fill up your petrol tank and check your oil for you. That was me, folks in a pair of blue overalls and beachcomber sneakers that were so worn at the soles I used to have red feet from splashing about in puddles of petrol. The mobile servo of the 70s was not your brightly lit mega-complex of today. It was dingy, squalid and dimly lit. So dimly lit that one evening a gentleman in a VW Beetle asked me to up it full petrol check oil and when I was fumbling about in the darkness with a dipstick... He hopped out of the car and said to me, You no get married if you cannot find the hole, and hopped back in laughing hysterically at his own brilliant piece of relationship counselling. Of course, no self-respecting casual employer of the 70s would have missed the opportunity to prepare young minds for the workforce with a little low-level bastardisation. In my case... It was being asked to fill a jerry can with water from that tap at the back of the mechanic's workshop. That tap, which unbeknown to me, had been soldered shut. So I'm there twisting and grimacing in pain while the mechanics and apprentices are outside the workshop falling over laughing. Or being asked to check the brake fluid dispenser, which was sabotaged so it would spray brake fluid all through my hair while the mechanics and apprentices are outside falling over laughing and other numerous such moments of humiliation designed to provide me with moral fibre for the journey ahead. Jokes of such mountainous hilarity, which presumably never got tired because they must have done it to every young dupe who started work there. This was my first experience of work. 
At least it earned me enough money for a golden gay time and a can of Devondale apple cider from the heavily made-up Christine Kennedy, who worked at the milk bar across the road and seemed to have suffered a temporary bout of tinnitus when I attempted to ask her out on a date. It also earned me a little on the side to start saving up for a drum kit, which had now become my calling in life, thanks to being nominated the drummer of Abroz while the rest of the members of Abroz presumably fell about laughing up the back of the workshop with the mechanics and their apprentices. Why did I become a drummer when I really wanted to be a guitarist or lead singer? I'll save that bit of self-psychoanalysis for another time. But yes, I now claim that I was in a band, and as the 70s wound its way toward the 80s, I spent a lot of time behind that corrugated roller door in St John's Avenue bashing out accidentally avant-garde attempts at emulating my idols, who on reflection would have been almost exclusively white and exclusively British. Very much unlike the music being played on Saturday mornings on Sounds Unlimited, which eventually decided to limit itself to being called Sounds, and hosted by our mate Donny Sutherland. Donnie had a sort of bad 70s, neatly coiffured hairdresser look about him and wasn't afraid of a Hawaiian shirt or one of those shiny satin bomber jackets that John Paul Young and his mates used to get about in over on Rival Program Countdown. I couldn't relate whatsoever to Donnie, even before the punk rock Spanish Inquisition deemed people who dressed like him to be committing crimes against the state. He still looked that way in the early 80s, by which time I'd undergone a vicious re-education program and was an insufferable university student post-punk jihadist. Donnie used to leave me red-faced in shame when a touring English post-punk icon came onto sounds to be interviewed and I felt must be thinking all of us in Australia were as smarmy and five years out of date as Donnie. You can see a clip on YouTube of Donnie interviewing Marky Smith of The Fall. It's excruciating yet compelling. You can just tell Smith, never the most pleasant person to start with, is sitting there thinking, this loser is the best these fucking redneck Antipodean throwbacks can come up with. I also recall a superb fingernails-against-the-chalkboard interview Donnie did with the mumblingly fay Robert Smith of The Cure. I have to confess all these years later I'm totally on Donnie's side, by the way, but my memory of it at the time was that Donnie obviously knew fuck all about The Cure and was relying on the bit of paper his researchers had slipped him as he staggered in from Silver's Disco just before shooting began. On said bit of paper, it must have said The Cure hadn't started as a band but had been a gang of friends that had just evolved into a band. Except Donnie seemed to think they were a gang in the tear-away shop-looting sense and he grabbed onto it like a rottweiler on a baby and wouldn't let go. Tell me about the gang. What sort of gang was it? A graffiti gang? Vandalism? Trouble with the law? Did you have an initiation ritual? That sort of thing. It was an honest-to-God reenactment of the Monty Python sketch where a TV presenter interviews the famous composer Arthur Toosheds Jackson and keeps asking questions about the sheds until Arthur breaks down. Robert did, I think, actually get a tiny bit grumpy with Donnie and suggest that he'd rather talk about the music. Sort of opposite to Tism, really. 
The poor interviewers just wanted to talk about the music, but Tism kept banging on about the fucking sheds. Well, that was Donnie. Back then, I thought Donnie was 50 million ways wrong. Now I'm on his side, neatly coiffured though he may have been, because Donnie and his sounds played a generous serving of soul music and disco, which of course I hated at the time, like you meant to hate Collingwood Football Club. We all know what eventually happened to my hatred for disco. Become the things you hate is my sardonic take on the secret of life. I hate people who waste the world's time with their relevant opinions on social media, in blogs, on podcasts. And look at me now. See you next week. You've been listening to Only the Shit You Love, the podcast. If you want to see the series or buy the music, go to campsite.bio forward slash DamianCowDC. See you next time. <laughs>